Welcome to the Universe Next Door, and thank you for joining us for our Good Friday special. This is something a little out of the usual, and we might be doing more cool episodes like this in the future. But uh, we have on a personal friend of mine. He is a professor at Trinity College of Florida. He has his PhD from New Orleans Baptist. And recently, uh, Chris Gates, you are now the pastor of a church. Uh, yes, I am. Yeah. Um, there's a Baptist church right here, um, by my home and they were in need of a pastor. Um, and I had just finished school and, um, I figured, yeah, that sounds fun. So we went there and, uh, going, uh, through kind of a little bit of a rebranding sort of thing, but, uh, it is currently, uh, Mosaic Church in Newport Ritchie. Um, we're very excited about it. There's a lot of really cool stuff going on right now. Um, a lot of new life kind of just being birthed into it. So um, pastoring is full of challenges, but it's also really fun because uh, you have a captive audience every week for, <laughs> you know, sometimes an hour at a time or whatever. But uh, I love to preach and teach, so it's cool to be able to work over there at the college um, and then also to be able to preach there at the, at the church. Right, and you're a very good uh, preacher and teacher, I can attest to that. Actually, if anyone's interested, you could hear him or I preach. We're going to be live streaming on the Good Friday service from my church where we have different preachers going over the seven sayings of the cross. So that's countrysidebaptist.org. Uh, it's the one in Clearwater. There's a few Countryside Baptists, but that's the church that I serve at and pastor at. Um, and so if you want to check that out, feel free to do that. But for our Good Friday special, you were going to talk about your PhD dissertation at New Orleans. And this isn't this isn't just something you came up with reading the Bible yesterday. This is like a very, very compelling case. And actually, I'll just warn you, he's he shared this with Gabby, uh, Gary Habermas, who's going to be on this show very soon. And he's also convinced a lot of people, including myself, uh, that I know personally with this argument and with this view of a passage that's very important and very, you probably know it, even if you're not all that familiar with the Old Testament. So if you want to take this and run with it, uh, Chris, feel free to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yes, Jesus, uh, generally, uh, he's attributed to having, uh, seven different sayings from the cross, uh, maybe six, uh, as we've talked six about. Six and a half. Yeah. Six and a half. You right. get to that later in some other show, I'm sure. Um, but, um, one of them and the one that has always been kind of the most, uh, thought provoking to me is the one that's recorded in Matthew and Mark's gospels. And the only, uh, quote of Jesus that Matthew and Mark include, and that is, uh, his, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, something that has been, uh, has come to be known as the cry of dereliction. So it's Jesus' cry from the cross expressing this state of forsakenness, you know, um, between him and the Father. Uh, and then um, it has just been really interesting in my life in the church um, before I started pursuing, uh, you know, theological uh, studies uh, in the academic uh, realm, it was always one of those questions that just kind of like loomed in my mind. Um, and as evangelicals, uh, we hold tightly to the doctrine of the Trinity, um, something that has been, you know, established in the church for, I mean, almost its entire existence. Um, and uh, it, something that the church fathers have affirmed um, from the from the very beginning um, going back to Nicaea is that the the Trinity is eternal and inseparable um, eternal and indivisible so um, then you have people um, pastors and, and and teachers and it seems to me people who are usually um, I think earnestly and honestly trying to understand 
um, what happened at the cross and what it was that Jesus was uh, expressing on the cross, but also they can take that cry of dereliction and then try to make it something really kind of like scandalous almost. And like, really, you start to hear all of these things like, and this was, you know, the one time in all of history that there was, you know, separation between the father and the son. And, uh, you know, you hear things like the, you know, the father abandoned the son on the cross. And you have even in songs like How Deep the Father's Love, you know, that uh, the father turned his face away from the son and all of these different things that people, I'm sure everybody's probably quite familiar with. And most people are like, well, well yeah, that's what the Bible says. Um, the difficulty is the Bible does not say that um, anywhere. And as I started thinking about how can uh, you get into any kind of Trinitarian studies um, and it's this idea that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are one. They are inseparably one. And then yet we have this time, usually right around Easter, Good Friday time, where people like to get on this idea that the inseparable Trinity was separated. So this became a point of consideration for me that I really was like, I don't, how do you, how do you square this circle here? You know, how do you make sense of what's going on here? And as I started to look into it and investigate it, it turned into something that has been now probably about a 10 year journey. Um, and, uh, I realized that, uh, the Trinity is indivisible and the Trinity has never been divided and the father and the son have never been separated. And I believe that the Bible attests to that. And it's actually quite clear, um, to me, <laughs> um, when you start to, when you start to really investigate it. So that kind of lays out the problem, um, a little bit, and then we can kind of move into how we work through it. Um, if you will. So you're kind of saying like, um, and this is one of the things that convinced me as well, that you're saying the Father and the Son, if they're actually one in being, they can't be separated. They're they're distinct, but they're not separate. Yes, yes. If they're separated, they're no longer one. Right. And, um, and I think this is one of those, just a warning, that he convinced me of this many moons ago, and this is a view I hold as well now. As long as, uh, most people I know that you've shared this with have said the same thing. And I think that um, sometimes people hold so tightly to this idea that, that Christ was separated from the father on the cross that they're they hear it and they they automatically think oh no i can't listen to this and and sometimes we just have to think through these things um and, and really just get into what the scripture actually says and is meaning to portray yeah. yeah and that is always kind of the uh what you have to look at anytime you're moving into any kind of you know biblical interpretation you first of all you need to look at your context you know the the larger context of the whole book you're reading then you want to look at the the context from which you're drawing the passage out of the immediate context and then if and when you can you have authorial intent that is in there too um, so that was kind of the approach that I took as I was looking at it. And I looked specifically at Mark because most people believe that Mark was, you know, uh, has priority in the ordering of the gospel so that he probably wrote his gospel first. He was the one who included it. It seems that Matthew came in later and then borrowed uh, much of Mark is how the scholarly consensus goes. So uh, if Mark was the one who put it there first, then we start to think why of all of the things that Jesus apparently said while he was on the cross, why is this the one thing that Mark wants to include uh, in his crucifixion narrative? And what is it specifically that he's trying to communicate 
uh, with us and and with his audience. So then you have to think about who's Mark's audience. Uh, of course, it's pretty commonly held that Mark's audience is the Christian church in Rome, consisting of both Jews and Gentiles. Uh, would have been a church with a pretty strong Jewish uh, background and history. Would have been a church that was very familiar um, with a lot of the Jewish writings. You have to remember the early church uh, up until you know that the earliest New Testament texts that we have are not coming in until the mid to late 40s uh, with Paul. So for for those 40 to you know 50 years or so, they are learning everything that they know about God and everything that they know about Jesus through the um, Old Testament. So uh, this church would have been familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. And um, I leaned kind of on the work of Richard Hayes in my dissertation, and he has two books. He's got... Um, uh, Echoes in the writings of Paul, and then he's got one echoes of scripture in uh, the Gospels. And his basic premise was that when the uh, Gospel writers were citing Old Testament texts, they were drawing in the fuller context of the Old Testament passage into the New Testament, if you will, the scene that they were uh, talking about in the Gospels. So, what Hayes is saying is they didn't just kind of henpeck verses, something that we even today, you know, we kind of look at and we say, well, you can't just take a verse out of its context, right? You can't just pick up a verse, any verse that you want and, and place it down somewhere and make it mean what you want. It came out of a particular context. So it means what it means in that context. And what Richard Hayes does is he goes back and he looks at all of these different um Old Testament citations that are all throughout the Gospels, and he demonstrates how those New Testament authors uh, drew in the whole Old Testament context, even when they would cite sometimes only a few words from an Old Testament passage. You can look back at the context from which that Old Testament verse came, and you can see how that context overlays or undergirds the New Testament context. So, that being said, now we can look specifically at um, Psalm 22. Now we can look at Psalm 22 and we can ask what's going on here. What's going on with this citation that um, that Mark has made um, in Psalm 22? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And of course, that being a psalm, its whole context is easy to find because it's marked off very clearly, uh, not like any of the other uh, mm -hmm. you know passages of Scripture. The right. They're individual right. songs. Opposed to just having to add chapter divisions, and I and I think that's a really important point that Jesus and in the New Testament authors they didn't just take a verse from the Old Testament and say I'm going to make it mean this now. Uh, we have to go back and dig into that Old Testament context and see what they were actually portraying. And uh, my wife and I were just talking the other day. We were reading in Matthew 10 where where Jesus says uh, he, he would turn. Uh, man against his father, daughter against her mother. And he's quoting from Micah 7. And when you go back and read Micah 7, I'm in the opinion that it, it looks like it could have been like the whole chapter quoted right there because it's so specific. And of course, Psalm 22 is one of the most specific messianic prophecies in the whole Old Testament. Yeah. I mean, it's just like so, it, like to the point where it's details you wouldn't believe yeah. um, are recorded a thousand years ahead yeah, of time. Yeah, um, that is that is exactly it. And I am not prepared and don't have it pulled up here, but with the uh, miracle of the internet, it will take me just only one second to do that. <laughs> but um, yeah, in Psalm 22, so uh, it's, it's yes, as you said, prophetic of the cross. Some people are going to kind of quibble about what type of prophecy it is. At the very least, we can call it typologically uh, prophetic if it's not a mm -hmm. 
direct prophecy, but David seems to be writing about a situation from his own life. This probably coming uh, in the season where, you know, David is being chased around by Saul and there's people trying to kill him or uh, whatever. And David says, he opens up in Psalm 22 in verse one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So, um, these are the words that Jesus, you know, speaks from the cross. These are the words that Mark puts on Jesus' lips on the cross. Um, so if we're taking haze, you know, for everything that he says, that you can draw the full context of this passage into the context he's using it in the New Testament, then, well, we should read the whole of Psalm 22. And it's amazing because as you start to read the whole of Psalm 22, you run into all of these very interesting, as you were saying, kind of prophecies um, about it seems like the crucifixion and he's he's going to go on and kind of just talk about you know his life and, and kind of how miserable it is right now and how all of this stuff is going on and then you come down to like verse 12 he says many bulls surround me strong bulls of bashan and circle me roaring lions uh, that tear at their prey they open their mouths wide against me i'm poured out like water all of my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. Uh, my mouth is dried like a pot shirt and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Uh, you lay me in the dust of death. So even some of these little details that are given here kind of poetically, you know, not in scientific, you know, uh, detail about the things that might be happening to Jesus, but the, the poetic things that are going on here, you know, about uh, his his bones and his dried mouth, that even being one of the, uh, you know, expressions of Jesus from from the cross. I thirst, you know, uh, he's, he's being dehydrated, those sorts mm -hmm. of things. You have his heart being turned to wax. John kind of alludes a little bit to this with the blood in the, in the water uh, flowing from Jesus' side. Uh, you continue to go down, dogs um, surround me, a pack of villains encircle me in verse 16 they pierce my hands and my feet <laughs> all my bones are on display right. people stare they gloat they divide my clothes among them and they cast lots for my garments um, so this very clear picture sort of developing here that as we're seeing this uh, it's like wow this really sounds like what we know about the cross. This really sounds like what uh, the gospel writers have told us happened to Jesus on the cross. So people start to look at this and they say, oh, wow, this is prophetic of Jesus. Wow. And uh, if, you know, if Mark is meaning to draw in the whole of Psalm 22, the whole context from which he drew that, that little bit, if he wants the reader to understand all the rest of it along with it, then you continue to come on down and then you get to verse 22, and all of a sudden, this is a typical psalm of lament, so if you go back and look at any of the, you know, form-critical work of, like, uh, Gunkel or anything like that, some of these guys that have done a lot of work in the psalms established a lot of what we know about uh, what the psalms are and how we understand them. This is a psalm of lament, a typical psalm of lament, and those usually start with this, the, the psalmist petitioning and crying out to God and saying, God, what's going on? Here's my circumstance. I can't believe this is happening to me. Where are you? Do you even hear me? You see a lot of psalms of lament like this as you read through the psalms, but almost always at the psalm of lament, there's this radical shift at the end, and then it moves into this section of a hymn of praise. And in Psalm 22, this happens, or it happens at verse 22. So Psalm 22, verse 22, this is where the shift happens. So he's talking about all this terrible stuff, he's lamenting what's going on, and then you get down to verse 22, and 
He says, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him, revere him. All you descendants of Israel, verse 24, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. So the the general idea is that if you draw the full context of Psalm 22 into uh, that crucifixion narrative, um, then it seems mm-hmm. that Mark, as he's understanding all of Psalm 22, is actually coming to the conclusion at the very end that the the lamenter, the psalmist in the original context, David, while he said, my life is really terrible right now, but at the end of the day, he knew that God never forsook him. He's saying this actually fits perfectly with what's going on with Jesus. Jesus' life, the day of his crucifixion, obviously very miserable. <laughs> the worst day in all of human history, actually. Right. Uh, but the message of Psalm 22 is that even on your very worst day, God never forsakes his children any of his children. And we believe this, we say this about ourselves. God, he will never leave you or forsake mm-hmm. you. You know, Jesus, That's those words are put on Jesus' lips. I will never leave you or forsake you. And w- we say this is in the nature of God. It is in the nature of God not to leave, not to forsake. And it, except for this one time on the cross, and that's what everybody always tries to, tries to squeeze in there. But it's like, no, that doesn't fit and it doesn't work. So right. you have this little intertextual sort of thing that I think really almost opens and shuts it. But then on the other side of that, you have the theological uh, side of it too, when you get into systematic theology, which we can talk a little bit about, but if you want to interject or ask anything. No, well, yeah, I was just going to say you have, uh, it's not just, you have all these angles to defend this from and to, to present this from. Um, and when we hear that song that says the father turned his face away, it's funny that my wife and I, when we, we sing it, we say the father didn't turn his face away, but, uh, but basically it, it kind of is pitted against scriptures you're pointing out because we're kind of used to hearing this over and over. But when you really think about it, it's not just that he didn't turn his face away. It's that he couldn't have turned his face away. If, if he turned his face away from Christ on the cross, that has so many implications, as you mentioned for the Trinity, it has problems with the actual text. And then it has implications, like you said, for us, like if he turned his face away from his son, then well, what does that yeah. mean for me? And you know, and I and so this isn't just like nitpicking some kind of theological point. I think it actually has a purpose to it, and understanding this helps us to know even more about who God is and, and to trust Him even yeah, more. Yeah, absolutely. And if for me, it has really kind of it has really kind of bolstered my understanding of the Trinity too. You know, because the crucifixion was it was a Trinitarian work. You know, people say that it was something that Jesus had to endure alone, like He did it all alone. And it's like the God in his Trinitarian form, doesn't do anything alone. No persons of the Trinity act alone in any way. I mean, that was mm-hmm. basically Jesus' whole message when he was on the earth. I mean, not his whole message, but a, a large thrust of what he was teaching was, I don't do anything apart from my Father's will. Like, I only do the things that the Lord empowers me to do and that he tells me to do, and that's what's going on. And it tells us, I mean, very clearly in Hebrews... Um, Oh man, the verse is failing me, but it's Hebrews 9.14. It says that Jesus offered himself by the Spirit. And right there, that's another text that like shoots this whole thing like completely out of the air too. Jesus, he offered himself by the Spirit. So you have the Spirit is the one who's... So Jesus is not being separated from the Father. And while that's not explicit, it's explicit 
that he was not being separated from the spirit because the spirit was the one empowering him. What verse That's was Hebrews that? Hebrews nine fourteen. So, so you have the Holy Spirit, and then you have Isaiah fifty three, which is it was the will of the Lord to crush him, assuming the uh-huh. Father, and then you have John two, which is that Jesus would raise himself uh-huh. up, um, and so yeah, and so you have all of these different parts of the, well persons of the Trinity yeah. uh, working together as one. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, yeah. All <laughs> parts. It's like Nick, you're a heretic. Get off all the, the all the yeah. persons of the Trinity, yes, working together to do this. And then what I really like too about that Hebrews uh, nine fourteen thing is that it says that Jesus offered Himself, right? And we all understand this as a as a tenant of the Christian faith that the sacrifice for our sins was Jesus. That Jesus offered Himself as a sacrifice for our sins. So just now, from a logical just consideration of it, if God the Father is rejecting Jesus on the cross, Jesus himself is the sacrifice. (laughs) So if Jesus says, here, I give you myself, I give you my life as a sacrifice for the sins of these people, and the Father's saying, no, 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 I I can't have anything to do with you. Uh, And this another, this another, uh, just a, a logical sort of consideration. People say, well, the Father had to separate himself from Jesus because Jesus was taking on the sin of the world and God can't have anything to do with sin. Then you just have to ask yourself, did Jesus cease to be God on the cross? When Jesus took the sin of the world mm-hmm. onto himself, did he cease to be God? And then, of course, the answer to that question is, well, no, of course he didn't cease to be God. So if Jesus can take on the sin of the world and he does not have to cease to be God, then why can he not maintain the unity that he has with the Father in the midst of that too? And it's just another one of those things I think that people say sometimes, and I don't mean to... I. Almost everybody I've ever heard, I mean, teaches this. So I'm not trying to disparage anybody. There's plenty of good Bible teachers and scholars out there. But like when you really stop and think about it, I mean, it's just impossible. (laughs) You just can't have, you can't have the Father and the Son being separated for even a moment of time. It is impossible. And, you know, while it seems like Jesus says that, if you just take it at face value, well, then that's, that's, yeah, sure. Then you would have to, you would have to say that. But there's so many different places in, in the text of scripture where we can't just take the things that are said at face value and certainly not in the most important event that's ever happened in all of human history. Yeah, right, because, I mean, there are different passages that are supposed to be viewed differently. I mean, of course, all of Scripture is inspired and inerrant and true, uh, but there are there are certain passages that are supposed to be viewed in a certain way, like you wouldn't read this, the Proverbs in the same way you might read uh, the narratives in the Gospels, Absolutely. you wouldn't read the Gospels the same way as Revelation. Um, and so they're all to be taken Absolutely. literally in a sense, but it, that doesn't mean that like Jesus was not a literal door, like he wasn't made out of wood right. when he says, I am the door. Uh, and so... <laughs> and so but yeah, I think that, that that point with the Trinity is so compelling because he's either always God and he's always one or he isn't. He can't he can't go back and forth between I'm God sometimes uh, and other times I'm not God. I mean, this this kind of plays into the idea of, of modalism that's so popular amongst uh, preachers today. A lot of big name preachers are, are boating this view around of modalism where uh, God is in these different modes. Sometimes He's the Father, then He's the Son, then He's the Holy Spirit, then He's the Father again. Uh, and of course, there we'll do we'll do a whole series on that one day too because that's important. But it kind of plays into some of these heresies when you and these preachers. You know, John MacArthur is and some of my favorite preachers have preached on my God, my God, why have you forsaken me and taken the view that we're kind of talking against here. And so I'm not trying yeah. to call everybody out who has this view, but it, when you think about it, there's a lot of implications yeah. that go yeah, with it. Absolutely. I mean, I'm more than happy to 
call out anybody, not to not to fight them, but if somebody has, you know, uh, if they can if they can shoot some holes in my dissertation, I mean that's what that's what you know peer review is all about. So I'm I'm open to you know any kind of critique here, but uh, kind of as you were saying, and it's not a it's not a brag or anything like that. I didn't I'm not the first one to come to this, and I took I had to take this a little bit further because I mean there there are a few people who basically arrived at this point. Uh, I was I, I kind of came to it myself, and then I realized oh some other people beat me to it. So my dissertation didn't end there. It went on to some implications for the interpretation of the conclusion of the Gospel of Mark, but it that was the important question for me that I was really trying to answer. So, uh, yeah, it's it's out there, um, but it's not really well taught, and unfortunately, it does it comes into all of our. I mean, I could probably name you four or five different worship songs. It's always a bad idea to <laughs> to get your theology from worship songs, even sometimes yeah, hymns. Right. Uh, you shouldn't be drawing your theology there. That, but we should be, you know, confirming uh, the theology of our worship songs against the text of scripture. So, but it's worked its way into all kinds of different. I mean, everybody's heard different things, and it's just this: people think Jesus died alone. He died forsaken. He died all by himself, and you know, as he was taken on the sins of the world. And it's like, no. And this is kind of really the it, it. It's kind of reshaped what I think about the atonement too, and how I think about salvation. Because people always say, "Well, Jesus had to be separated, you know, from the Father, so that you don't have to be." And then I'm like, "Well." I mean, I guess if Jesus was separated from the Father and you're trying to work it into some kind of penal substitutionary model, then, okay, yeah, like, I can see where you're coming from, but... They're, they're kind of just, they're using the wrong terms, yeah, I think. Yeah, but if, but... You could say he took on sin so you wouldn't have to. Yeah, work. yeah, right, but to right, say the punishment separated. from sin. And this, of course, too, this opens up a whole nother, a whole nother you know, uh, topic of discussion because there are some texts of Scripture that talk about, you know, being what is the consequence uh, for sin. And then, of course, we're assuming that Jesus bore the full consequence of sin. He did. I mean, this is what, this is what the Bible tells us. But is the consequence of sin actually separation from God? Or do we have some kind of poetic language that's going on there when we're talking about separation from God? And what does separation from God actually mean? Because you also have texts like in Revelation 16, where it talks about uh, those who are being punished eternally, that they're being tormented in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of mm -hmm. the Lamb. And it talks about hell being right. a place not that God is absent from, but actually that he is superintending, which becomes a whole nother people say, well, God's watching over hell. Um, and then, I mean, you can go back and of course the Psalms are poetic, but David in Psalm 139, you know, where can I go to escape your presence? Uh, and the fact of the matter is, is mm -hmm. you can't go anywhere to escape God's presence. And perhaps what hell, right, he's yes, perhaps it is that hell is not <laughs> the absence of God, but it is instead the presence of his wrath, the presence of his fury, that it is actually the mm -hmm. wrath uh, that God that burns against sin, that that is what hell is. And so right. Jesus takes on that. He takes on the wrath of God. It's not crucifixion that was the punishment for sin. It's, physical death is part of the punishment for sin, but the greater punishment for our sins is dealing with the wrath of God. So it is, if, if we're maintaining a unity of the Trinity— as Jesus is taking on the sin of the world, then the way that I have kind of come to understand it at this point is that it's not Jesus being cast away so that we can be brought in, but it is actually Jesus bringing us in at Calvary. It's actually him in 
perfect union with the Father. And as he begins to take on the sin of the world, however metaphysically this happened, I have no idea. You know, Second Corinthians 5.21 is quite clear that it did happen. How it happened, I don't know. But as he started to take my sin and your sin into himself, onto himself, he stayed in the presence of God. And as we're told, as we know with Moses, God says, you're a sinner. You can't even see me or else you will die. That happened in Jesus, that as he was in the presence of God and this sin started, my sin, your sin started to come in, he died. <laughs> he died there, taking on our right. sin in the same time, ushering us up to the throne of God. He was bringing well, us before the no, throne in his death. Right. And that also plays into the point where we mentioned about the Trinity, but when when Christ went to die on the cross, he still can't be separated. He's man and he's God. He's truly man and truly God, I think is mm -hmm. a better yes. a better term than fully. Yeah. Uh, because when we say 100%, it's like that's the idea that helps us understand. But there's a certain point where somebody's going to say, well, that's a contradiction. It's kind of right. But when we say he's truly right. man and he's truly God, those two natures are uh, two natures distinct in one person, but they're not yes. separate. He can't be separated. So we can't just say the humanity in Christ right. died, but not yeah. the divinity. And we also get into, of course, we could do a whole thing on what it means to die. Sure. Because nobody ceases from existing when they die. As you said, uh, God's even present in hell in a certain sense. And of course, if he's omnipresent, kind of like we said with the concept of the Trinity, he's always God. Well, he's always present everywhere if he's omnipresent, if he's always yeah. present. Yep. And so... Um, yeah, and so there's just there's just a lot of we could make a hundred episodes about these these concepts, but if he's always present, that means he's also present in hell. And and Satan is not ruling hell; Absolutely. he's cast into the yes. lake of fire. He's not he's not the king of hell. He's, he's the king being of tormented there, just um, like so everybody else. He's being yes. tormented, right? And in a lot of the world, just as like a practical implication of this, they think Satan's down there just waiting for them to have a parade right. with him. Um, and I think he's convinced a lot of people that's the case, but it, of course, it certainly isn't. God is the ruler over everything that exists, including hell that he created for yeah. his wrath. And, yeah. Um, yeah, so I think that's just a really important point and one of the many implications Absolutely, of this. yeah. And you brought up the hypostatic union, too, that, um, you know, you have two distinct natures of Jesus, but that they are inseparably bound. I mean, this is something that uh, we affirm, again, as, as Christians, that Jesus' humanity and his divinity are distinct, but connected entirely so people say you know that's another well maybe he just forsook his humanity and not his divinity it's like well you can't you can't forsake just one of them they're they're like intertwined right. so uh yeah every kind of angle that you want to look at it or somebody wants to argue it's like there's there is a good there is a good reason and a good answer to say no he he did not forsake his son and then kind of the the to bring it to where my dissertation actually went so the the whole idea I was talking about authorial intent, you know, and why would Mark, you know, include this in his gospel? And um, this gets into a whole nother TC issue, which I know has become a recent hobby of yours. So um, you can attest to the fact that uh, one of the most open and close, you know, uh, issues in textual criticism is the end of Mark. You know, that Mark, it, mm -hmm. you get the crucifixion and then you get the resurrection account and you have the women that show up at the tomb and there's, it says there's a young man there uh, clothed in white and an angel. There's an interesting discussion about why he's called a young man too, right. but just. Which is found in the King James. Yeah. Which, which is a, a great translation, by the way. I'm not an anti-King <laughs> James guy. I'm just pointing yeah, it out. Well, 
I'm sure some of our listeners are, are King James only. That's uh, I, I would disagree with King James only, but it's a yeah. great translation. Yeah, there's an interesting there's an interesting point to be made. It, it kind of ties into a little bit of a little bit of what uh, Mark is doing, kind of I think with uh, his discussion about the disciples throughout his gospel. But he says to the women in this in this very ironic uh, sort of fashion, he says to them, "He's not here. He's he's been raised from the dead. Go back." And tell the disciples. And then he says, and the women left terrified and they said nothing to no one. In the Greek, it's a double negative. It doesn't work well in the English, but it says they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And that's how 16.8 ends. And as you know, doing textual criticism, the best manuscripts that we have of the Gospel of Mark, that's where it ends. And most of you, if you're listening and if you have a, a relatively you know, newer edition of the Bible that they have done their um, TC work with, they're going to have a little footnote that's going to say everything after 16.8 is not original to the text. It's, it's clearly a later edition. So you have two questions. It's like, did Mark intend to end his gospel at 16.8? Or did something happen to the manuscript to where we don't have it anymore? Maybe Mark couldn't, he got killed and couldn't finish writing it. Uh, nobody knows. Of course, we believe it's Peter's testimony. So maybe Peter was killed and he couldn't get the rest of it and he just left it there incomplete. Or perhaps he decided to intentionally leave it undone there kind of undone. It would be done to him, but leave it as kind of a cliffhanger at 16.8. And now if he did, it's, mm-hmm. it's a really funny question. Why would he, why would he leave his gospel, you know, with this, the angel says, go tell everybody. And it says, but the women left and they didn't say anything to anyone because they were afraid. You have to think about who Mark's audience is. First of all, it's, there's the bit of irony uh, before that. That's just so funny because there's this messianic secret that's going on in Mark where every time Jesus does a miracle or someone acknowledges him for who he is, he always tells him, don't say anything. Yes, very well. You've, you've right. recognized me as the son of God. Don't tell anyone. And then it says, and I'm sure yeah, they did. And then it says, and then they went and they told everybody. <laughs> I'm just kidding. And then they went around and they told, and that happens all the time. So Jesus says, don't tell anybody. It's not my time yet. Please don't tell. And then people go on and they tell. Then you have here at the end of the gospel, for the very first time, people are told, go tell. And then he says, and they didn't tell anyone because they were afraid. It's very interesting because if it is that Mark's audience, as is almost unanimously agreed upon by almost all conservative scholars, that his audience is the Christian church in Rome sometime in the mid to late 60s at the height of state persecution in Rome. So this is the time that the Christians themselves are being crucified. It's the time that they're being killed in the in the Colosseums, fed to animals, all of these different other things. They're being persecuted and tormented to, to you know, unimaginable uh, degrees here. It's very likely that this church is starting to fall victim to fear. They're starting to fall prey to fear. They're starting to be afraid. They know that if we go out and if we say anything about this, we're going to end up killed. And then they're probably looking around at their circumstances, at all of their loved ones, their friends, their family, and they're looking around and saying, God, we came to you. We gave our lives to you. We gave our lives to this thing, this movement, whatever you want to call it, because we believe that this is that you are the way, the truth, and the life. But now as we're following you, we're being killed. Have you forsaken us? And if there was any psalm, mm-hmm. <laughs> any psalm at all, probably, that the church in Rome, that that Christian church in Rome could really have identified with, 
I believe it would have been Psalm 22. And it would have probably been incorporated into their worship, just like we sing all of our Chris Tomlin songs and Hillsong songs, uh, depending on what church you're at. Uh, <laughs> well, some of us yeah, do. I figured you'd have something to say there. Don't get me started uh, on my views. <laughs> Uh, just as we sing all those, they would have sung the hymns and they probably would have been very familiar with Psalm 22. So when they hear Psalm 22 in a coming off of Jesus lips, perhaps it resonates with them immediately because they think to themselves, oh my gosh, I also feel forsaken. Wow. Jesus felt forsaken just the same way. And that same, this is part of Hayes's, uh, part of Hayes's, uh, thesis is that there's this original context, right? So you have the original Old Testament context that David was writing from. Then you have this new context that the New Testament writer puts it into the life of Jesus. So the Old Testament being, call it Christotelic, right? Old Testament moving us towards Christ. And then Christ actually comes and embodies this Old Testament text. And then he says there's a third level, and that is where the church actually starts to embody these texts. So this then starts to become real in the lives of each one of us in the church. Um, And for the church in Rome, this starts to become real for them. So as they're going through now, they can also relate to this just like Jesus did. They're actually literally being crucified. Their hands and feet are being pierced just like Jesus was. They're being surrounded by wild animals, mm-hmm. almost in, in a sense, even more literally, you know, than Jesus was as they're being fed to animals. And they're thinking to themselves probably also, he's forsaken me. But then they're encouraged with the fact, no, he hasn't. This is where it becomes really interesting. And this was kind of the new bit that I added to all of this discussion is that when you get to the end of Mark, most people believe that at 16.8, he says, these women were afraid and they didn't say anything to anybody. And that's how Mark closes his gospel. And he's trying to make, uh, it's like this reader response sort of reaction. He's trying to get out of the people. So this big, long, awesome story goes by. We hear all of this awesome stuff. Mark, it's actually brilliantly written. It's a very well done story story about Jesus. He dies, he's raised to life. Then the angel says, go tell everybody. And then he says, and they didn't say anything to anyone. And then it's like, why would you? Now imagine if that is intentionally how Mark wanted to leave it. And that's how the story was ended. He didn't say, they didn't say anything to anyone. Well, now the audience, the whole audience is sitting there thinking, why wouldn't they say anything to anyone? And that, of course, I believe is the question that Mark is asking his audience. Why wouldn't they say anything to anyone? Why aren't you saying anything to anyone? And if his audience is thinking about the whole of Psalm 22, then we're not going to stop even at 24, which was where we just stopped, but we're going to go on to through the last uh, six or seven verses here uh, from you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live on forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to you, O Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before you, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. So now you take the full context of Psalm 22, and it seems that Mark throws this in there kind of to let his people know Jesus wasn't forsaken, even when it seemed like he was. 
you haven't been forsaken even when it seems like you are. Because you have not been forsaken, because God does not forsake you, and sometimes your deliverance comes even through death, sometimes you have to die in order to be delivered. That's what happened to Jesus. He had to die, and his deliverance came in his resurrection. So all of us, even after we're dead, our deliverance comes through our resurrection. Because of that, he says, now your responsibility is to tell the nations. Now your responsibility is to proclaim that. So if Psalm 22 is ringing in the minds of Mark's audience, that's the last quote we hear from Jesus. And then his gospel closes. They didn't say anything to anybody. And they're kind of leaving, you know, whatever service they were at where this was being read to them, almost certainly is how it would have happened. They're probably thinking, hearing Psalm 22 in their heads. Now, all of a sudden it's, oh my goodness, he hasn't forsaken me. I have to declare this to the nations. I have to continue to tell this story where, you know, he says the women failed. And of course, we know the women didn't fail. It's a it's a literary device. Mm -hmm. You know, it's again, one of those things where it's not to be taken literally. The women obviously went back and they told the disciples, but he's making a literary point there um, in this one and saying that that that's what happened. So that was kind of where, you know, uh, the whole of the 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 dissertation went. but yeah, it was a lot of a lot of fun. Yeah, no, it was, and I, I can't think of a better ending than that. Um, that was a great way to to tie it all together. And like we said, this has so many implications. So think about it. If you were convinced, that send us an email at information at apologetics.org because we want to know. Uh, we like to hear from people. We like to answer your questions. And you have a podcast, uh, Ravel. I do. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, we kind of talk about the uh, intersection of kind of uh, the world and the Bible, society and scripture, as we call it. So um, I do that with a co-host, a buddy of mine. His name is Basil Rosewater. Um, If you, there's two Ravels. Somebody ripped off our whole idea for our podcast and started another one. Oh, no. Yeah. So just look for, it's got my name and his on the bottom. Uh, We got the kind of the white cover with like a little ball of yarn um on it but yeah yeah, we talk about all kinds of weird i'll I'll link it in the description uh, awesome that'd be so cool and we'll have to get you on over uh over our show talk about some stuff at some point too that'll be fun little cross germination yeah yeah that'd be really cool well uh, that was awesome and i hope everybody had as good of a time as we did and uh yeah thanks for thanks for listening and thank you chris again That's Chris Gates, by the way. Most of you will see the title here, but uh, that's Chris Gates, professor and pastor. Thank you so much, and thank you for listening to The Universe Next Door.